You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, A whole bunch of Savage Love listeners alerted me over the weekend to a 19-year-old chess prodigy, Hans Nyman, who beat a chess grandmaster at a prestigious tournament. I was alerted via text, email, and DM, but not, sadly, via remote-controlled vibrating anal beads. Nyman was accused of cheating. The thought was he had some sort of device on him, a wire or something, and moves were being sent to him by someone or something, a supercomputer, observing the match. After Neiman was searched by officials and no secret wires or devices were found on his person, another theory emerged. The device wasn't on his person. It was in his person. Vibrating anal beads. The theory was floated on Reddit by an anonymous user. Neiman had cheated at chess for years by having his next move fed to him via vibrating anal beads or suppositoried to him via vibrating anal beads. That was the theory. Reading about that, that was the accusation. Reading about this theory, this accusation, I thought this is either the Queen's Gambit sequel we didn't expect with butt toys instead of blue and green pills, or it's the Ratatouille reboot we didn't want. Instead of the rat that wants to make oat cuisine, it's a gerbil that wants to play elite level chess. And instead of hiding under a chef's hat, that gerbil hides in. Anyway, the chess prodigy cheating with vibrating anal bead story went viral because of course it did. But there are more possible moves in a chess game than there are grains of sand on all the beaches on the planet. Now, I don't know if that's true about chess moves or grains of sand, but I read that on the internet a minute ago and I'm not going to verify it. Just like a whole bunch of reporters heard about a teenager winning a chess match over the weekend with the help of vibrating anal beads and didn't attempt to verify that before pushing it out. But if anyone who wrote up this story for Deadspin or Der Spiegel or NPR or the New York Times or a million other legit news organizations, if anyone who'd written this story up had bothered to check with anyone who'd ever had remote-controlled vibrating anal beads in their ass, my contact info is right there on my website, they would have known that vibrating anal beads are a blunt instrument. There's an on switch, an off switch, and you can adjust the intensity just a little bit. But trying to use vibrating anal beads to communicate about something as complicated as a chess move with all those possible moves, all those grains of sand, yeah, that did not happen. That could not happen. Also, vibrating anal beads are relatively loud. You can't hear them in a club over the music or in a restaurant over the din. But during the hush of a chess match or a golf game or the Latin mass, you could hear those things. But because no one checked, this poor kid, this poor little chess prodigy is going to live under a cloud of suspicion for the rest of his life. He is always going to be the vibrating anal bead chess cheater. Another story that didn't make as much news last week, crazy how that vibrating anal beads chess cheating story managed to break through during the week of Elizabeth II's funeral, and this story did not. But a candidate for office in Canada was outed. Trigger warning to my French listeners in France and French-speaking Canada, all over the world, I am about to butcher some French names 
forgive me. A 22-year-old politician in Canada, Andrianne Fiola, was outed after she was recognized in a short porn clip that had been posted to OnlyFans and Pornhub. The film was apparently made with her knowledge and posted with her consent. She wore a mask in the film because she wanted to remain anonymous, but she had a recognizable tattoo and some asshole recognized it and ran to some shitty newspaper run by assholes that I will not name. The good news here, the leader of her party, Parti Québécois, Paul Saint-Pierre Plamondon, I apologize again for butchering all these names and all these words, the leader of her party, of Fiola's party, stood by her and rejected calls for her to drop out of the race. Plamondon condemned the outing, compared it to revenge porn, and then added, who hasn't watched porn? Let them cast the first stone. I wish Fiola herself had been as fierce in her own defense. She released a statement saying, among other things, I apologize to those around me. I would never make a similar choice again. This is really the I smoked, but I didn't inhale of appearing in porn. For my younger listeners, Bill Clinton was asked about pot use when he ran for president in 1992. And he said this. And when I was in England, I experimented with marijuana a time or two, and I didn't like it and didn't inhale and never tried it again. No one believed Clinton when he looked into the camera and said, I did not have psychotropic relations with that wacky tobacco, Miss Marijuana. But it was at the time what a politician had to say. Even though everyone knew it was a lie, it was a lie that everyone agreed, or almost everyone agreed, a politician had to tell. The idea being if a politician was honest about using drugs and enjoying the experience without getting addicted and dying, some kids out there in their dare classes might decide to go ahead and use drugs anyway, give them a try and enjoy them just as much, but get addicted and die. When Barack Obama ran for president in 2008, he admitted to smoking pot and inhaling. He described inhaling as the whole point of smoking pot, but then he added it was a youthful mistake. Now, of course, both Clinton and Obama support the legalization of recreational marijuana. Fiola can't now say about making porn what Clinton couldn't say in 1992 about smoking pot. She enjoyed it. She has to frame it like Obama did in 2008 as a mistake, a mistake she has to apologize for. But it's clear from the timing here. She made the video of this FFM threesome less than a year ago after she started her political career. Seems to me clear from the timing that making porn wasn't something she was doing under duress. I think it's safe to assume it was something she did for fun. And she only came to regret it after some asshole spotted her tattoo and ratted her out and ruined her good time. Zooming out for a second, if you're going to complain, and almost everybody out there recently has complained about our democratic gerontocracy, People of all ages like to complain about the gerontocracy. Joe Biden is 79. Nancy Pelosi is 82. Dianne Feinstein is not at home. If you want to see younger people running for office, winning elections, having power, shaping the future, younger people, particularly on the more sexually liberated left, yeah, you're going to have to get used to this. We're all going to have to get used to politicians not just having sexted privately in the past and those sex possibly getting leaked, but politicians having made and shared a little porn too, possibly even on a site like Pornhub. Young people, digital natives, people who grew up showing off online, 
people whose entire erotic lives have been shaped by and mediated through technology for good or ill, those same young people, lots of them, they like to show off. Lots of people do. People also like being naughty. People like taking risks. Not just men, women too. And lots of people out there make porn for fun and profit or a little of both. And that's how we want porn made, right? Ideally, not by people who were coerced into making porn by shitty partners and not by people who were coerced into making porn by shitty economic circumstances. As I've long said, if you don't want people making porn or doing sex work because they have no other options, because they're broke, support a guaranteed minimum income, social housing, Medicare for all, then all our porn will be made by pros who love the job and feel fulfilled by it professionally, or by amateurs who want to dabble and who are getting off on it sexually, and maybe earn a little extra cash, not money they needed to survive, but money they could enjoy spending. Mad money, not sad money which seems to be the case here. But like Bill Clinton could admit to smoking pot, but not inhaling to smoking it, but deriving no pleasure from it. Someone running for office who gets outed for making and sharing a little porn can admit to doing it, at least in French speaking Canada, but they can't refuse to apologize for it or admit to having enjoyed it and then refuse to apologize for it. With pot then, I smoked, I didn't inhale. With porn now, I appeared, I didn't get off. But one day, someone is going to say, I made porn, I enjoyed making it, I enjoyed sharing it. And isn't that the whole point? And hey, speaking of making and sharing porn and having fun and doing it for all the right reasons, the deadline for entering Hump 2023 is coming right up a few months away. Films have to be short, five minutes or less, but they don't have to be graphic. Erotica, animation, prop comedy, all have a place in Hump And you don't have to be a professional filmmaker. Some of our favorite films every year, audience favorites, films that win Hump Awards, shot on cell phones by first-time filmmakers. Some Hump films tell a complete story in five minutes with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Others offer a quick glimpse in a minute or less of someone's erotic inner life or their bedroom or their relationships. There's no fee to enter Hump, and you can enter Hump from anywhere in the world And every filmmaker whose movie gets into Hump gets a cut of every ticket sold. Go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit for all the info you need on making and submitting a film for Hump 2023. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A. And on the Magnum, Dr. Carlton Thomas returns to take a couple of listener questions about monkeypox and a couple of listener questions about his usual specialty, butt stuff. And in this week's Savage Love, which you can read at savage.love slash savagelove, NPR's Peter Sagel, host of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, NPR's news quiz show, drops by for a quickie. It's not his job, but he is good at it. Peter and more in this week's Savage Love. But first, this week's Savage Lovecast. Hi, Dan and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I have a question about pornography and parents. I... Caught my father looking at porn about a year ago and realized that, yeah, he's in his mid to late 80s and he's still into that. Great. Good for him. I then asked him later if the reason that his computer wasn't functional anymore had something to do with his porn consumption habits and was he downloading pornography. And he admitted that, yes, he had, in fact, downloaded PDFs of pornography, which is just mind-boggling. 
and I said that he should not be downloading anything related to pornography, that there were websites where he could stream pornography. And would he be interested in some suggestions? And he said yes. And then I had some time to think about it, and I wondered if actually sending him those websites is a good idea. He has a sort of addictive personality to things on the computer. He already sits at the computer way too much, um, including just playing solitaire for hours on end. And so I wonder if I send him XTube and RedTube, et cetera, and he hasn't found those on his own, am I kind of opening up Pandora's box? And am I just going to help him create a new problem that keeps him stuck at his computer at an age when he really should be up and walking around and being active and not being, you know, sucked into a screen. So on the one hand, he has a problematic behavior right now that is causing him problems for the functionality of his computer and potentially his personal information. On the other hand, I could be creating a new problem. A time in life comes when you parent your parents. I get so many questions from parents who want to direct their kids they're teenagers, usually they're boys, to responsible places, relatively safe places to watch pornography on the internet. And it's just interesting that here's a question proving that maxim that a time in life comes when you begin to parent your parents where you're wanting or you're in a position where you're wondering whether you should direct your 85-ish-year-old dad towards some safe places where he can watch pornography. I think you should definitely do that. I think your concerns about your dad getting addicted to pornography or more addicted to his computer than he already is at his age are a little misplaced. Better your dad should be sitting at his computer playing solitaire and having the occasional wank or falling into a you know porn rabbit hole than sitting on his couch watching fucking Fox News. I know so many people my age, people in their 40s and 50s whose parents don't watch enough or any pornography, whose parents only watch right-wing hate porn on Fox News and OAN, if only their parents were watching Xtube and Pornhub or Make Love Not Porn. It's a great resource if you want your dad to watch more ethically produced pornography cindy gallup's website make love not porn check it out also erica lust's website erica lust is a porn producer and director and she creates a lot of ethically made porn and you can get your dad a membership at erica lust's website your dad might also want to check out humpfilmfest.com you can direct him to these places and if he spends a lot of time watching porn even if he develops something of a porn addiction at, not that I think porn addiction is a real thing. Even if he winds up spending more time watching porn than you think he should, it's none of your business. And what harm is it going to do him every minute he spends in front of his computer having a wank, popping Viagra and having a wank at his age is a minute he didn't spend in front of the television watching fucking Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson. Take the win. Your call reminds me of this moment when my, I mean, it's a little darker. My grandfather was dying. He was in his 80s and he was dying of cancer. Maybe this has nothing to do with your dad's situation. Hopefully your dad is in perfect health and will live for another 85 years. But my aunt ended up having this 
ferocious argument with his doctor because he was in pain and being stoic about it and Catholic about it. And my aunt was demanding that they give him more and stronger pain medications. And the doctor said to my aunt, we're worried he might become addicted. And my aunt just about tore that doctor in two, like who fucking gives a shit if he gets addicted to morphine at 85 when he's dying what's the harm in that particular addiction and i guess my argument to you right now and the reason i'm thinking about that scene in my grandfather's hospital room from so many decades ago is what's the harm what's the harm in your dad spending more time watching porn than you think a dad should also, the only way you found out he was watching as much porn as he did is because he's downloading and is fucking up his computer and you're obviously his IT person too, like so many of us are for our parents. You will spend less time being his IT person if he's not downloading porn but streaming it safely on websites where it's safe to stream porn and it's not going to fuck up his computer. So even if he winds up watching more porn because you got him onto the streamers and onto sites like Erica Lust's and Cindy Gallup's Make Love Not Porn and My Hope Film Fest, you'll hear less about it. You'll find out less about it. You'll know less about it. So everybody will win. Your dad will be watching more and better porn more safely, and you will have to think about it a whole lot less. My question is regarding a partner who is submissive, truly submissive, not dominant, not into anal play with uh, me, the male partner, you know, we're both bi. Just curious about introducing more anal play that doesn't involve top or domination flavors, something that is more uh, aligned with a cis female who is more submissive and how to make her feel more comfortable with being involved with that sort of a thing. I guess it depends what you mean by anal play. Some people who aren't into anal rule out all anal play, anal stimulation, anal pleasure because they feel like they're on a slippery slope to anal penetration. And some people just aren't into being fucked or they gave it a try and they didn't like it or they just know that it's not for them. You don't have to necessarily give everything that you're pretty sure that you won't like a try to prove that you're, you know, sexually adventurous, not sexually oppressed, uh, and then legitimately be able to say that you don't like it. I have never performed cunnilingus. I don't think I have to perform cunnilingus to say that I'm pretty certain that's not something that I would enjoy. It is legitimate when someone says, yeah, I am not into anal. That said, if you can disassociate, break the link that exists in so many people's minds between any anal play and getting fucked in the ass as the end point, if you can talk about and enjoy and put on the table anal pleasure and stimulation that doesn't require anal intercourse and where that's not your ulterior motive or that person isn't picking up subtle cues that that's where you would ultimately like it to go, someone who initially told you that they weren't into anal might be up for some anal stimulation. You know, you go down on somebody, you're going to spend some time below their genitals too, you know, behind their balls, licking their perineum, 
you know, if you're eating her pussy and you're going up and down, there's probably a moment where you're below her pussy and you're at her perineum. It is almost a cliche at times that people will accidentally wind up getting rimmed briefly and experience that as very, very pleasurable. I'm not saying like starting in her pussy and then sneak your tongue into her ass. I'm just saying that most people, even people who aren't into anal, may have had moments where there was accidentally anal in play and they were like, well, that's not entirely unpleasant. Still not something I would tell a partner I wanted to do or a place I wanted to go for fear that that would create expectations on my partner's behalf that, hey, I'm going to get to fuck this ass at some point. So you would have to very explicitly say to somebody who might be open to some experience of anal pleasure or stimulation, but never be interested in getting fucked in the ass that, you know, vibrating dildos can be sat on. They can be not pointed at an anus and shoved into it, but laid across and through a crack and then be, you know, the anus can be pressing onto it without it pressing into the anus. And that can be very, very pleasurable, even for someone who quote unquote isn't into anal. I would really want to unpack with you uh, before you approached your sub partner about this. And subs are allowed to have limits. I hope you didn't throw sub out there as if your female partner is somehow obligated by dint of being a submissive to come through with anal pleasure because it's what you as the dom wants. Subs can have limits, hard limits, and rule things out. And as a dom, you have to respect that. But I would really want to pin you down on this. What is you, what, what, what is the motive here? Is your desire ultimately to get her to a place where she's begging you to fuck her in the ass or willing to let you fuck her in the ass? Well, then don't do this. Don't manipulate her by offering to explore anal pleasure and stimulation that's non-penetrative because what you really want is to penetrate that ass. You really want to hit that ass. You're going to have to let go of your desire to fuck her. Really let go of it. And if you can't really let go of it, don't go there at all. Don't bring it up at all because you don't want to see her having thundering orgasms because her anus is in play and then allow that to get your hopes up that she might want your dick in there too when it's already been established that she does not want that. So there's a couple of conversations you need to have here. One with her about why no butt stuff at all. And is she aware that there's lots of butt stuff that you two could enjoy together? Light, not deep rimming, you know, toys laid across, not shoved in, uh, that she can bear down on but not be penetrated by, and fucking. And it doesn't have to be fucking. But then there's a conversation you need to have with yourself where you really make an honest self-assessment about whether if it's butt fucking that you really wanted, whether you can honestly and sincerely let go of that and not go into these interactions, you know, not go into an anal play session with her with consciously or subconsciously an ulterior motive about getting her to a place where you can reopen negotiations about penetrating her anally. Because if that is a hard limit that she has thrown out there, that she has put down, even as your sub, you're going to have to respect that. And if you can't respect that, then you're not a trustworthy Dom. And I think you want to be a trustworthy Dom. I like to think that 
all the doms who call into my show are aspiring wannabe or actually are trustworthy doms. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Rescue. I'm a 32-year-old cis female, Ken and Polly, living in the South, and I'm currently in a relationship, only one relationship, with a guy for about a year and a half, and for reasons that I talk about in therapy, this is the first romantic partner that I've ever loved. And that's all well and great. We only see each other about once a week because he has other partners, and it works out for me with my schedule. So... In between, I'm going to masturbate just because I'm a highly sexual person. We're kinky. We do kinky things. But, like, you know, the very end, we're just going to end in pretty vanilla PIB sex. And so when I'm when I'm masturbating, I usually like to think about, like, kinky debaucherous things. That's what I like. But then recently, as of very recently, I've been finding myself, like, you know, in the middle. And then in my mind, I'm thinking about by a man I love, by by the man that loves me, to becoming one, you know, real heteronormative vanilla shit, uh, and it really takes me out of the mood. So, one, is this what normal cishet, like, monogamous relationship people think is, like, in their sexualities, like, they do they really associate it with love all the time? What are your thoughts as to why my brain is doing this, and how can I either lean into it and make it sexy, or... I don't know, make it stop. Not that I don't like it. Like, it makes me smile. It makes me happy. It makes me feel good to be in a loving relationship that I've never really had the opportunity for before. But also, like, I need to get off in the middle of the week. And love doesn't cut it then. Different things are sexy to different people. And a lot of what we find sexy are things that are transgressive. So you have a lot of crazy, kinky, fun poly sex that you observe often ends in missionary position PIV on the floor. I have made that observation as well. You go to a crazy dungeon and there's all sorts of sex toys and slings and whatever else people might be doing to each other. At the very end, it often, the result, what it's all building to is PIV, missionary position, heterosexual vaginal intercourse, on the floor with all the used toys scattered around or PIB missionary position, gay intercourse uh, on the floor with all the toys that have been used scattered around the room. Often the kink, the props, the costumes are very elaborate foreplay that winds up in the same place. People who aren't into kink or very elaborate foreplay, no props, no costumes are also going. But what's, what's transgressive is subjective and, and relative. There are probably a lot of people out there into missionary position vanilla intercourse who, when they masturbate, enjoy deeply fucked up transgressive thoughts or what they think are deeply fucked up, what you and I might think are just kind of crazy kinky or might objectively be deeply fucked up. I've heard from people who are 100% vanilla who, when they masturbate, think of – Vor, eating people, cannibalism, incest, all sorts of crazy, transgressive, fucked up, weird shit they would never want to do in real life, never want to inflict on anyone else or have inflicted on them. But there's something about thinking about these horrible things when they're alone and they're masturbating and they're not with a partner that just gets them off. And I think it's hilarious that there you are, kinky, Polly with your boyfriend that you say that you love 
and you do all these crazy kinky things with him, often ending in PIV on the floor at the end. And yet when you masturbate, your brain is taking you to a place that for you in your subjective experience feels transgressive. And that place is something lovey-dovey, missionary position, ooey-gooey, affectionate sex in the context of a sexually exclusive monogamous relationship. For you, that's transgressive. For you, that seems a little fucked up. Don't resist. Enjoy. My advice to people who are 100% vanilla, confident that they're vanilla, and yet when they fantasize or read a dirty story, they want something that's really fucked up is to allow those two things to exist side by side, that we are all of us a mass of contradictions. And this may be one way that you are or have become a little bit more self-contradictory. And rather than you know, try to hammer out the rough edges rather than trying to reconcile these contradictions. I think part of the human condition is to just say, Hey, crazy, weird. This thing I would never want to do turns me on to fantasize about, to think about the vanilla ooey gooey loving relationship you would never want to have turns you on to think about in between those moments that you are enjoying the crazy kinky pan poly relationship you actually do have. So don't fight it. Enjoy it. Lean into it. Unless it's ruining your orgasms, unless these fantasies of something far more heteronormative, far more lovey-dovey, off-the-shelf, standard-issue intimacy are preventing you from coming, then I would identify this as not a sexual fantasy that turns you on, but an intrusive thought that turns you off. And if you're having problems with intrusive thoughts that ruin sex or ruin your day, cognitive behavioral therapy. But if you're not having a problem, if you are able to get off, let yourself get off by not sitting there saying, why is this turning me on? Ah!" And you're able to come. It's not an intrusive thought. It's a sexy transgressive thought. And you should just lay back and enjoy it. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and everyone. I'm a 31-year-old queer woman living on the West Coast. And I'm currently engaged to my partner of about three years. We are planning to get married in about a month and a half. We have had a interesting history of our frequency of having sex. Early in the relationship, we were having sex quite often, daily or multiple times a day. My partner and I both separately went on to antidepressant medication, both of which do have a slightly stifling effect on each of our sex drives and our frequency of sex for the last year or so has maybe been once every three or four months and this isn't a problem for my partner you know we've had a lot of conversations about it i wish it were more frequent the problem is is that we have gotten into a negative pattern around 
having sex, which has resulted in me initiating my partner rejecting and then me feeling rejected and us going to bed kind of grumpy. (laughs) We started going to couples therapy to address this issue. And when we first started going about six or so months ago, I was feeling very confident that, you know, our wedding was still about a year away. And I was thinking, okay, you know, my partner is willing to work on this. We have good communication around this. This is something that we can address. And I just have to say that the wedding is getting closer. We're set to be married in six weeks. And I am just not feeling good that this issue hasn't really been figured out yet. It makes me feel hesitant about, you know, standing up there in front of all of our family and friends and saying, you know, that I commit to you, knowing that we have kind of this big issue. For context, we're also monogamous right now, but I identify as non-monogamous and we've had conversations about opening up our relationship, but my partner also has felt like now is not the time given our current issues around sex. What do I do? Do I really push my partner to problem solve this issue before we get married? Is that too type A of me wanting to solve all the problems and more recognizing that committing to someone in this way is about committing to continuing to solve problems forever? Am I just getting nervous? Or is there some sort of big red flag that I need to be paying more attention to? You may be nervous in the run-up to the wedding, But this is a perfectly reasonable thing for you to be nervous about. A sexual disconnection like this, uh, mix-matched libidos, a a waning uh, of the sexual connection, these typically aren't things that a wedding marriage makes better over time. It doesn't seem to me that sexual connection, sex between two people, is ever anything that's resolved that can be solved for all time. It's always an ongoing negotiation. You know, libidos wax, they wane. Um, Stresses, life stresses come and go. People may react to stress differently. You know, there's a lot of studies that came out during the pandemic. A lot of people wound up hornier as a result of the pandemic and, and wanted to have more sex. A lot of people wound up seeing their libidos completely crater and didn't want to have any sex during the pandemic. A problem if those two people, if two of those people were married to some to each other, that you know somebody whose libido went through the roof because of the stress of the pandemic, trapped in a one-bedroom apartment while we were all locked down with somebody whose libido tanked. Yeah, that would be a recipe for conflict, not necessarily fatal. You know, we're coming out of the pandemic; people are back in the world. Hopefully, the those out there whose libidos cratered, they came back. If those two people could, you know, in that relationship and that mixed reaction to the pandemic libido crashing or libido soaring relationship, were able to keep communicating, focusing on what was working in the relationship, 
maybe carving out reasonable accommodations, you know, less expectations and pressure on the person with no libido, some release for the person with the higher libido, whether that was go ahead and watch porn and I'm not going to make faces or give you grief about it. Or another solution, and maybe this would work for you and your fiance, a little assisted masturbation. Those nights when you try to initiate and she says no, maybe she can say no to having sex herself, even getting undressed herself. But maybe she could say yes to helping you masturbate, a little assisted masturbation. Can she wield the vibrator is she, you know, happy to sit on your face and talk dirty for a little bit while you masturbate? Is there something that you can do that feels for you like sexual release, like you're getting sex and intimacy and doesn't feel for her like she's having to have full sex at a moment when then she's not really feeling full sex, but she loves you and likes you enough and isn't disgusted by you or by you know a little providing a little assisted masturbation and that's a really important part of assisted masturbation it doesn't work if the low libido partner is like oh, all right yes i'll sit on your face god can we get this over that's not going to be happy and pleasurable and make the high libido partner feel like they're being seen respected or their needs are being met if the low libido partner can be like hey i'm not really feeling it right now you know what you guys usually do is strap on dildos and fuck the shit out of each other and she's like ah, i'm not really feeling that right now but if you want to you know lay in my arms and watch a little porn uh on the tv or lay in my arms and use the vibrator and i'm happy to nuzzle your neck and whisper a few dirty things in your ears about you know past experiences we've had and what i might be up for in the future if your low libido partner can react that way where it's joyful and something that they're happy to give you in that moment, well, then maybe that can happen once a month and then every you know two or three months when she's feeling like having sex, you guys can jump in and have sex. But you need to resolve this. I would really encourage you to resolve this before you get married. Sexlessness in monogamous marriages that leads often to cheating. Yeah, that's a huge contributor to the kind of conflict that winds up seeing couples divorce. And if you don't want to risk that, this is something that you're going to want to figure out and solve now. It is a conversation you should have before the wedding, as difficult as it might be to have it. What are the accommodations going to be? How are you going to make your high libido and her low libido work? How are you going to make your sex lives work? Some allowance for outside sexual contact for you? Maybe some allowance for outside sexual contact for her? Maybe that would spike her libido and you would benefit from that too? Assisted masturbation? Allowance for porn use? No grief about it or guilt about it? What is it going to look like? You've identified the problem, low and high libidos, before the wedding, identify the solutions. Hi, Dan. I'm an 18-year-old cis female. My boyfriend and I have been together for about 10 months and are quite in love. We're currently long distance, too. We told us first and continue to communicate after every time we have sex about what was good and what was sort of lacking. 
So he always finishes, and the only way I finish is with a toy during sex, which I don't find very fulfilling. We feel like we've tried everything, but maybe there's something we're missing and that you could suggest. If I really can't orgasm during sex, are there ways we can like heighten the experience so that I can feel more of the intense feelings he does, like via physical sensation? It's really great that you and your boyfriend are able to communicate about sex the way you do. And I have a few suggestions on how you might ramp up or improve your orgasms. But my first kind of broad and general suggestion is to reassure you. You've only been sexually active for 10 months. It's a long distance relationship. Don't know how often you and your boyfriend are getting together. You're still growing into your sexuality, into what your body is capable of, into the pleasures that you can experience. And so that you're not quite having, and stop comparing your orgasms to his, you're not having orgasms at the intensity level that you know, that you intuit, that you, you know, really know deep down you could be having. Give yourself some time and some space as you get more experienced to grow into those kinds of orgasms. My first bit of practical advice for you would be to stop regarding, quote, having to use a toy as some sort of failure. It's entirely possible that if you weren't standing outside yourself, observing yourself during sex and feeling like you failed somehow when the toy comes into play after he gets off to get you off, you might enjoy those orgasms that you're having with your boyfriend, with the assistance of that toy, more if you weren't being so self-critical about how you're obtaining those orgasms. I don't know how long you've been listening to the show. We've talked about this a lot on the show. There are women who can't come basically without, well, not basically, literally, without uh, the assistance of a vibrator. Most of your clitoral tissues are deep inside your body. And for some women, direct clitoral stimulation to the exposed part of the clitoris, the glands, during intercourse or you know, using their own fingers during intercourse or with a tongue, that's enough. But other women, the clitoral tissues that really need sensation, really need to be stimulated to get them to climax, are a part of the clitoral shaft, are deeper in the body. And it really is the vibrator that best hits those. And it may be that you're that kind of woman. It may be that you're the kind of woman who's always going to require that vibrator to hit the clitoral tissues that you need to hit, that you need to stimulate in order to climax. And if that's true, you will have to accept and love your body and accept and love how it works and be grateful that you have a partner who isn't one of those insecure, testosterone-soaked dick monsters, mailbags, a slop, who thinks you're deficient or broken because you need a vibrator. You don't say that your boyfriend has any hangups about it. It sounds like the hangups are yours. And I think you should let go of those. That said, you know, at 18 years old and only 10 months sexually active with a partner, I don't want to at this point say that you're one of those women whose superpower is deep clitoral stimulation. That's how I come. And the vibrator is the best way to get me there. Those women aren't broken. There's nothing wrong with them. But at this point, we don't know if that's who you are. And I think you should give it a little bit more time. You may want to set the toy aside every once in a while uh, and not 
so quickly at this point, I don't want to say resort to it because it makes the toy sound like a failure at this point, not be not so quick to call in the, you know, the heroic cavalry that is your toys or your vibrators and stick to fingers and tongues and positioning. You, you know, you say you're experimenting, you're only 10 months sexually active. Your boyfriend may be as inexperienced as you are sexually. What is the kind of stimulation that you're getting when you use a toy? Where are you getting it? Are the positions that you're having sex in, uh, the charming intercourse with your boyfriend in, are they hitting your clitoral glands, the exposed part of your clitoris, in the same way that you're able to hit them when you pull out that toy? And if not, you should experiment with different positions. You could also experiment with toys, different kinds of toys, maybe some smaller bullet vibrators that can be used, weaponized, positioned, deployed during intercourse. So as he's building toward his orgasm, you can be building toward your orgasm and maybe your orgasms would be more intense and more all body pleasurable if uh, not, you know, coming simultaneously, that's overrated. But if you were coming near to when he is coming, when the sex or the intercourse, if you enjoy it, if you enjoy penetrative sex, is at its most intense physically and psychologically. And that would be my last bit of advice. Psychologically, you know, I hope you're engaging in a ton of foreplay. I hope you masturbate on your own sometimes and you're an expert on your own orgasmic, uh, you know, response cycles, plateaus on your approach to orgasm. I also hope you're engaging, you know, it's a cliche, the largest sex organ that we have, which is the one between our ears. Is the not just what you're doing physically, but is the story that's being told when you two are intimate, when you're with your boyfriend, is the narrative that you guys are creating erotically together? Is it engaging your fantasy life? Is it fulfilling? You know, is it sexy? Is it arousing? Not just you know hitting the marks physically, but hitting the marks. Psychologically, is your erotic imagination engaged, not just your physical self, not just your body? What turns you on? Is that also a part of it? Because that can be really transformative. But having that overlay of, of a narrative arc while you're also experiencing all those pleasurable sensations being, you know, given and received with someone that you are attracted to, it can really take that orgasm from good to great. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. We've got another monkeypox question for you. So I'm a gay man living in a small patch of blue in a red state. My husband and I host a monthly sex party in our home, or we typically do, but last month we canceled, and this month we canceled, and next month we canceled. And we are wondering, how long do you think we're going to have to cancel? We're basically the only game in town. This state has no 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 uh, sex clubs, no bathhouses. We have a pretty good sized home. We typically have around fifty guys out each month. Uh, my question is, how much longer? Seriously, how much longer do you think we'll have to wait until this is under control? What does under control even mean? We're worried that this is just going to end up just like COVID did. We remember two weeks to stop the spread, turning into two months to stop the spread turning into two years of us never stopping the spread. 
for this to work, everyone needs to stop, not just small-town sex parties. Other events are still going on. Dory Alley wasn't canceled. Folsom Fair wasn't canceled. Everyone isn't going to be stopping. Ergo, this isn't going away anytime soon. I don't want to cancel the rest of the year and then have it have to have at that point have to cancel another six months and on and on and on the way COVID was. So what points do we just start back up again and do what we need to do to protect ourselves? We're thinking about starting back up again in October and requiring that all attendees show proof of monkeypox vaccination. Is that enough? What sort of numbers would you personally need to see to feel comfortable saying that we can get together again? For many here in the, in this in this part of the part of the country, this party is literally all we have to look forward to each month. Joining me to help tackle this question, Dr. Carlton Thomas, who has been our go-to medical expert on monkeypox since the start of this health crisis. Uh, Dr. Carlton Thomas is a Mayo Clinic trained gastroenterologist and a Saxon health educator on social media, on TikTok and Instagram. Hey, Dr. Thomas, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. Hey, it's great to be here. Before we get to the particulars of this caller's question, can you give us the 30,000 feet view of where we are right now with monkeypox? Cases are generally coming down in, a, in the bell-shaped curve of, of infection rate right now. Uh, New York City and New York in general doing phenomenally well. If you look at the curve, it's really dramatically shifted downwards. There's a 40% reduction in cases, um, especially in the larger cities where vaccinations have been more prominent. Mm -hmm. Overall, still, there are 22,609 cases, I think, this morning. Uh, as, as we speak, uh, in the United States and almost 60,000 worldwide, uh, still rising in places like Brazil. To put that in some perspective, there was an mm -hmm. outbreak 15, 20 years ago where there was, you know, 12 or 22 cases. Right. And everybody freaked out about that, about 20 cases in the United States traced to prairie voles or something. Right. Um, and so now we're talking 22,000 cases in the United States. Even as the numbers fall, that is still, when we're talking about monkeypox, a huge number. It's a huge number. It's something we've never seen before. And people are still getting infected. So while, yes, great, things are coming down, you can still get infected. And I want people to be very vigilant still and make sure you're getting vaccinated We've given over 450,000 vaccinations in the United States alone, which is great. There is a disproportionate effect on the people who are getting monkeypox versus the people who are getting vaccinated. And, and the government's trying to help take measures to correct that right now. But if you see new cases, over half of new cases are in black and Latino folks in the United States. Whereas when it, when you look black and Latino gay environment, yeah, yeah. this is still but, but yeah yeah it's still, still a gay it's still ninety four percent in the you know, pretty much in the men who have sex men with men community. So in black and Latino men who have sex with men, we're seeing well over half of the cases new daily, and mm -hmm. still fifty percent of new cases come from random one time hookups, according to CDC data. Okay, so we need we need better outreach to get vaccines uh, to people who are black, uh, men who have sex with men, black, Latino right, communities. It's, it's, oh, it's actually the opposite as far as vaccination numbers because they're getting vaccinated way less. Right. So my, my concern, you know, I've seen some of the stuff zipping around on social media saying, you know, people made behavioral changes. People got out there and got vaccinated. And look at this drop off. And my concern is sort of COVID inflected. You know, every time during the COVID pandemic, when 
infection rates came down because we were wearing masks and social distancing, the response was, okay, we can stop wearing masks and social distancing. And then they went right back up. Uh, you know, my concern is as people may be looking at, you know, the monkeypox infection rates falling and thinking, oh, I don't have to worry about this anymore. Oh, I can, you know, start hooking up with randos again now, even though I'm not vaccinated. Right. And that's the concern. You know, vaccination is really key. Get those two shots. I'm still getting people come to me with on social media with new infections after one shot only. Um, it's less than it used mm -hmm. to be, but you know, people are saying, "Oh, I was about to get my second shot, and boom, I have monkeypox." And I would say, "Well, did you have any interactions?" "Oh, yeah," you know. So, and I've only had one person contact me through social media so far who had two shots and didn't play at all during the two shots, and then two weeks after that second shot, they did play and they ended up with monkeypox, but they were in a group sex situation, uh, and. Uh, you know, this vaccine is thought to be 98% effective, we think. We still don't have great data because it takes months for the data to, to come out. But, you know, it can still happen. Right. You throw enough dick at it, you're going to be in the 2% possibly. Absolutely. Uh, okay, so let's, let's uh, pivot to this caller's concerns. Here's a guy who's been kind of doing it right, even though it sounds like they may be in a, you know, a place in the country where there hasn't been an enormous outbreak, not in New York, not in Chicago, a small blue dot in a red rural state, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, this sex party that they throw, 50 guys regularly come, it's the sort of social event of the month, every month for his gay community. Um, and I think when you listen to the caller talk about these sex parties, you can see that sex parties aren't necessarily or always, or even for most participants, people go to them because they enjoy them and they find joy in them, that this isn't some grim affair, that this is where, you know, he finds meaning, his partner finds meaning, and this community that they brought together finds connection. And they've had to cancel it. They've had to. They've done the right thing, canceling these parties month after month while they're waiting for people to get vaccinated. At what point do you think he can safely start up these parties again for, for his community? The big answer to that right now is we don't really know. 100%. We don't have the data to know that right now. Uh, what we think is that once people are vaccinated with two shots and give two shots at, two weeks after the second shot before they play, they're a lot more, they're a lot safer as far as not getting or spreading monkeypox. I think he mentioned something about maybe having a vaccination card or you have to have proof of vaccination to get in the door. It's tough to do, but it's definitely something that would probably be helpful. Um, I'm still getting, you know, young kids today who've never been vaccinated who are calling me with their first, you know, their first symptoms. So, you know, it, it's definitely still out there. And I think, you know, to the caller, I would say I think that's a reasonable requirement that you require everyone who wants to come to this party. And if it means so much to these 50 guys, that's going to motivate them to get out there and get their asses vaccinated if they haven't already. But what you've seen, the limited amount of data that's in, but the anecdata, mm -hmm. and you've been, you know, your Instagram and TikTok have blown mm -hmm. up. You get a lot of anecdata pouring in every right. day to your social media. And what you've seen is people who are fully vaccinated. Uh, they've got their first shot, waited four weeks, got their second shot, waited another two mm -hmm. weeks. Only heard from one person. Right who got that second shot and waited two weeks, who got monkeypox. Right, and they, they were in very, very high-risk situations to get monkeypox. So, you know, I, so, so, and, and with- They were throwing a lot of dicks A lot of it. And, and uh, good for him. Uh, and then uh, thinking back on things, you know, with, with the way the curve is really dropping in New York, the vaccine is definitely doing something. Because, you know, although a lot of people are making behavioral changes, a lot of people aren't. 
So the fact that numbers are coming mm -hmm. down has to be attributed to something. And I think the vaccine is also playing a big role in addition to the behavioral changes. Let's talk about the FOMO of this. He says he sees that, you know, Folsom and Dorian SF haven't been canceled. Other people are still going to sex parties and they're canceling theirs. And that's not fair mm. or it seems unfair that they should have to cancel their sex parties while other people aren't canceling theirs. What will you say to him about that feeling? You know, I think from my own experience where I learned the summer when I went to Mykonos and had, you know, 10 inch uncut cocks in my face and, and couldn't touch them. <laughs> my husband and I looked at each other and said, Hey, you know what? The, the dick is still going to be here next year when we get back. So I think mm -hmm. just being a little patient and not worrying about what other people are doing and protecting yourself is the most important thing. It's still going to be there that, that, that all those 50 dicks and asses are still going to be there. Uh, in, the in the next couple of months. They're not going anywhere. They have nowhere else to go. And yeah, <laughs> they have nowhere else to go. In the next couple of months, all those 50 guys could get vaccinated. And to, you know, call back to an earlier pandemic, sexually transmitted, I remember listening to guys in the 80s and 90s complain about having to use condoms when other guys weren't using condoms. Other guys didn't use condoms, died. You know, that was the incentive to be condom compliant right. wasn't like, you know, to show it to the guys who weren't using or were using, it was to protect yourself. So, you know, there were a lot of people who went to Dory, a lot of people went to Folsom, just Folsom Berlin. I went to Folsom Berlin, um, who skipped the parties, skipped the sex parties because they didn't feel good or safe about them, you know, and they did the right thing, even though they were at the event. Don't assume that everybody who went to these events was, you know, jumping in the sling and putting their right, exactly. The all right, I have a question also on monkeypox for you from someone who's definitely not homophobic. Hey, Dan, mid-30s woman. I'm here with my boyfriend, and I have a question. So my dog uh, has been playing at dog parks lately with other dogs. You know, we live in a pretty metropolitan area. I'm a little bit worried about him catching monkeypox from other dogs, particularly from dogs with owners that are gay men. I'm bisexual. I don't want to be homophobic, but I'm just a little bit concerned. Okay, before we get to the dogs giving other dogs monkeypox and then those dogs spreading their gay monkeypox <laughs> to the innocent um, opposite sex couples at the dog park, let's remark on how not homophobic this, this question yeah, is. It's seems. like saying, I'm not racist, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, caller, this is pretty fucking homophobic. Like there's a lot of bisexuals who out there who will rightly point out that, you know, some homos are biphobic. I think we homos at this moment have a right to say, hey, uh, bisexual, that's a kind of homophobic <laughs> question. Yeah. To her point, there have been a, a few cases where dogs have gotten monkeypox from their owners. Like I think the, the first one documented was in Paris. Uh, there was a couple that were letting their dogs sleep with them while they had monkeypox in the bed and from the infected linen got monkeypox lesions. So that's really incredibly rare. This is usually the opposite thing. Usually animals give it to humans and humans don't give it to animals. But in this particular situation, this was pretty a pretty rare thing to happen. And I had another guy on Instagram who said, oh, I'm a barber and I pulled out someone's infected hair and I got monkeypox and I gave it to my husband and my dogs that way. Yeah, you can spread it to dogs. It's incredibly rare. It's why the CDC says don't have your animals around you if you have monkeypox. You should be isolated from them because if they get in contact, they can, out, they can actually also get monkeypox. But 
going to, you know, going randomly to a park and having your dog spread monkeypox to another. Yeah, that's ridiculous. That, that, that's not going to happen. So the case, the cup, the handful of cases where this rare thing has happened, monkeypox spreading from a human to a dog, sustained, ongoing, constant, intimate contact, the kind of intimate contact right. that humans have with their pets. Absolutely. But your dog is not going to have that kind of contact at a dog park with somebody's monkeypox infected dog that they're probably not going to bring to the dog park. She's just look caller. I'm sorry. You're just looking at a gay couple with a dog and thinking, gay, monkeypox, dog, monkeypox, my dog, monkeypox, me, monkeypox. Not how it works. That's exactly right. This is the stuff that prevented a lot of health departments from taking action early enough was this fear of creating stigma. Exactly this kind of stigma where people exactly. would look at gay men and think, oh, disease pariahs. Oh, they're like disease spreaders, right? And that's what right. this caller is doing. She's looking at a gay couple that isn't covered in monkeypox lesions, that if they had monkeypox, they'd probably be doing the right thing and staying at home and isolating and staying away from their dog and thinking, oh, gay equals monkeypox equals risk. There's a dog. Right. Yeah. 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 Kind of homophobic. Very homophobic. So. Before you got into the monkeypox business, before you got dragged into it by the monkeypox <laughs> outbreak, um, you were most famous for for tackling butt stuff. Absolutely. And a lot of people, gay and straight, have questions about butt stuff. And uh, you were doing a lot of education. You were even selling T-shirts. Right, exactly. Right? Yeah, here for the butt stuff. Here for the butt stuff. So we have a couple of butt stuff questions just to show that, you know, you're not just the monkeypox doc, even though we've kind of referred to you that way on the show a lot. Right. Um, I have a couple of uh, butt stuff questions that have come in I'd like to to get you to weigh in on. Awesome. Hi, gay man from the Northwest. I'm calling with a question that's not about me directly, but uh, something I've noticed in online porn lately, it seems like stuff about or including prolapsed anal stuff is showing up a lot. Not my particular cup of meat, but I just am curious about something that I tried asking some of my other gay friends and they all acted like abject horror when I mentioned prolapse anuses. <laughs> um, so apparently uh, it's not a very popular thing or just not widely accepted. Anyway, I'm really curious to know is it something people teach themselves to be able to do? Is it something that they're just born that way physically and are able to do? Or is it a medical condition and considered a dysfunction? Because when I tried to Google things to find things out about it, I sort of got a bit of all three. Prolapsed anuses or rosebudding, is that some sort of X-Men superpower that a certain small percentage of gay men are born with the ability? Well, it, you know, it certainly is a thing. If you look through Twitter, you can see it all the time. People trying to prolapse their rectum out of their anus. And some people are really turned on by that. Um, I am not one of them, but I don't judge people who are. Um, it, what it is, what's actually happening is part of the rectum is actually sliding out through the anal opening and protruding out. There is a danger in that long term for the person who's doing that. Um, it, it happens usually from a weakness in the walls uh, of, the, of the rectum and the pelvic floor. Uh, usually it's happening in women from childbirth, but not always from childbirth. But more cases happen in mm -hmm. rectal prolapse in women than in men. But what happens is that area of musculature falls through the, uh, the anus and prolapses out. What can happen is it can get strangulated out there and be an emergency. 
and require surgery. Mm-hmm. But usually you're able to just push it back in. But it can lead to long-term problems with being able to have good bowel movements and can lead to a lot of problems with constipation and bleeding. Not exactly the the ideal thing you want to have happening. Yeah, it's not my cup of meat, like the caller said, not your cup of meat. It's, it is a kind of varsity level extreme sex mm-hmm. act. You know, I, I have a couple of friends who are into fisting, but are, have taken my advice, all things in moderation, including moderation, right. like every once in a while they go sure. for it, but it's not an everyday activity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if rosebudding is your thing, if pulling some of your rectum out through your sphincter, through your anus, and then your sphincter kind of closing around it and, and it making this like, what to me always looks like a ball of hamburger, right. that really turns you on and then pushing it back in and you're able to do it. That's awesome. It's not... A common sexual activity, even among people who enjoy a lot of anal sex or using right. toys. I don't even I, I, like, obviously, I sound completely squicked out by it because <laughs> I am, which is not to judge or shame anybody who's into it. But for people who have seen, you know, encountered some of this, you know, more extreme porn, do you learn how to do this? Is it something that you should learn how to do? It seems to me that it's you would be very easy to injure right. yourself attempting to induce an an erect. Right, it prolapse. takes a certain amount of damage down there to be able to pull that off. So to, to be able to protrude your rectum through uh, th- through your anus, so it's not something you want to do in the long run because it can definitely lead to uh, to some major problems as you get older. So something to scratch off your bucket right. list and then maybe not right. raise it. If you're interested in it, but this idea that like all gay men are doing this, even all people who are into like extreme, like large toys or fist fucking, this is even in that community, the fist fuck large toy community, a tiny minority. Exactly. It's, it's weird how porn is this, you know, distortion field where we see things in porn they tend to bubble up a lot and we're like, Oh, this is common. A lot of people are doing this just because you're seeing a lot of it popping up in porn doesn't mean a lot of people are doing it. It might mean a lot of people are freaking out about it or sharing it. It doesn't mean a lot of people are able or willing. Right. It's kind of, yeah. Same idea with things like, you know, people see creaming on a porn video on Twitter and then automatically think they're supposed to be able to do something like that. A lot of that is just porn you know, lube and mm-hmm. whatever else up in there. So, you know, people get all caught up. Wait, in wait, what's, what's creaming? Creaming is where a bottom actually expels a creamy substance rectally. S- some people think that they can make a bottom cream or that they are a creamer, but it's, it's actually usually, and that would be a, that would be a non-dairy, <laughs> right? Definitely a non-dairy. That would be a, a, a usually, and actually, that's what it is. It's basically Santorum. So basically, from the from cum, from lube, from friction, and all that going back and forth and back and forth, it creates a frothy mixture, uh, which sounds like Santorum, which because it is, um, uh, and that's what creaming is. But people see that on porn and think, oh, you know, I've got to, you know, I've got to be able to do that. Why can't I do that? Well, it's because it's usually not a thing. There is rectal mucus, but a butt is not a vagina. Right, right, it doesn't right. produce, you know, a rectal equivalent of vaginal secretions. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, stimulating um, mucosa can cause like whatever it is to produce a little bit more mucosa. Right. So rectal mucosa, you can, some people produce a lot of it, just like some people, yeah. you know, 
produce a lot of snot right. during a blowjob and other people right. don't produce a lot of snot during exactly, a blowjob. Exactly, exactly. But I don't think that's a, a skill anyone could acquire who's interested. Right, in right, exactly. It's just mucus and then with the friction of, of, of sex plus the lubrication, it all just gets whipped up and that's what people think. It's, if, if you just expel something creamy from your ass, there's a problem. Yeah, you're not digesting the mushroom soup. The Campbell's mushroom soup is just flying right through your system. All right, we have, we have one more call for you. One more question. Hey, Dan, straight dude here. My long-term partner and I were watching the new Netflix series Uncoupled, and there's a scene where Michael goes home with another dude who is a dermatologist, and he pulls out a needle to Botox his butthole to apparently make anal sex easier or better. We participate in anal sex ourselves, had never heard of this before, have lots of questions like how long does the Botox last in your butthole? This is really a thing. Do porn stars do this? Do sex workers do this? What's the deal here? So uh, have you seen Uncoupled? Let's start there. I have and I've seen this scene and I kind of was horrified because while it is a thing, it is not a thing that way. Botox, if, if you've ever had it before, I've had it on my forehead before, it takes a good week or two to actually paralyze the nerves in your, in your muscles so that you're able, they're able to relax out and your skin can smooth out. Same thing in the anus. So the, anus is a, the anal sphincter is a circular muscle. Sometimes those nerves are so tight down there, uh, make, make it so tight that if you just paralyze some of them, it allows it to relax and open up. We use it often in people who have anal fissures to allow the, the spasm mm-hmm. to relax so that it can heal. But like I said, it takes one to two weeks. So you're not going to have some guy reach over in, your, in his nightstand, pull out a Botox s- syringe, and then inject it in your butt. That's just not going to happen. You know, it takes it, First of all, it, you should never do that in someone's bedroom. Second of all, it takes a good couple of weeks to work. So they got that part wrong. That's just not the way that works. But yes, absolutely. There are people who get their buttholes Botoxed to relax for sex. Some people are really super tight down there and they can't take anything up their ass and they want to. So if you go to a proctologist, there's one in New York City that I know of that does it. Uh, They'll do some testing. And then once you're cleared to have it, they'll inject Botox around the anus. And people do swear by how much easier it is to bottom after that. And I actually have a porn star this week who messaged me and said, yeah, I'm going to go get my Botox this week coming up because I want to be able to bottom better. So, yeah, it does happen. It's not going to happen in probably, you know, Mobile, Alabama. But if you're in a place like New York or San Francisco or L.A., you could probably find a proctologist who would do it. But you wouldn't find or shouldn't find, or if you do stumble over, a dermatologist who offers to do it to you in his bedroom right before he fucks your ass. Yeah, that's not happening. You should run screaming. (laughs) Right. (laughs) It's only happening on on this show. Yeah, MPH actually had the right response in this case. Which was? Get up and running. So, any other butt stuff recommendations quickly before we go? Uh, You know, instead of Botoxing your butthole... Use, use my butt clock technique. I have it on my Instagram page where you actually insert your finger in and, and press it over laterally on the, on, the, on the muscle. And that will help open up your hole a lot faster than Botox will. And lube. Lots of lube. Lube, lube, lube. And take your time. And anybody out there who's just starting with anal, my recommendation is always solo anal play. Particularly butt plugs. Have some orgasms with something in your ass. Yeah. 
so that you can create an association, not between like fear and performance anxiety and anal penetration, but an association between anal penetration and your own pleasure, right. not just the person who's getting to fuck your ass. Right, exactly. And those first two minutes or so of bottoming are really critical because you have to allow the relaxation to happen or you can tear your butthole and you don't want an anal fissure that can put you out of commission for months and months. So, and it's really painful. So yeah, start slow, use the relaxation technique that, that I talked about, use the lube that you talked about, maybe even start on top so you control how fast it goes in so that you don't just have somebody ram their dick up your ass and tear you. Dr. Carlton Thomas, a Mayo Clinic trained gastroenterologist in San Diego, right? Southern California. Right. Yeah. And uh, where can people find you on TikTok and Instagram who haven't already found you there? Um, I'm on both at Dr. Carlton, D-O-C-T-O-R-C-A-R-L-T-O-N, all spelled out. And then my Twitter is Dr. underscore Carlton. I can't tell you on behalf of the entire gay community, I feel that I can speak for the entire gay community <laughs> at this moment to say thank you because you've done just heroic uh, education. You've made yourself available, you know, free of charge, 24 hours a day practically to people out there who don't have easy access to medical care or medical advice. I've seen your interactions with so many people on Instagram who needed help, needed referrals and got them uh, at your account uh, as we made our way through this as we're making our way, we're still making our way right. through this monkeypox crisis. Um, and you've been absolutely heroic. And and I want to thank you. Well, I, I appreciate that, Dan. And I, I don't want you to lose sight of what you've done as well with your, your voice making this situation very loud early on uh, with me uh, about this being mostly a sexually spread phenomenon in the, in the men who have sex with men community. It raised a lot of eyebrows and a lot of awareness that prevented people from from taking actions that would have gotten the monkeypox. So pat yourself on the back too, okay? Well, well, thank you for that, uh, Dr. Carlton Thomas. I hope you come back on the show. Thank you. I will. And, and, and hopefully, in like six months or a year, it'll be an all butt stuff conversation. Oh yeah, and yeah. no monkeypox. Oh, absolutely. Let's do it. Hey, Dan. I am a 42-year-old lesbian in Texas. I have two questions. I just got out of a short relationship with a woman that I vibed with so hard on so many levels and best sex of my life. We brought out this very natural domination and submission in each other, but I just needed more than she could give me. So with regards to that, I want to know, as I am pursuing ways to get under somebody else, does it ruin the whole thing if I'm thinking about her while under somebody else? And my second question is that I am very heavily tattooed, and I know that taking nudes and sending them to people without your face is to conceal your identity to a certain extent. I really can't do that. I'm very identifiable. So do I just say fuck it and send the nudes or is there a certain kind of limit or question I should have answered in my mind before I send them? Well, it's not going to ruin it for me if you're thinking about your ex-girlfriend while you're under somebody else. And it won't ruin it for the somebody you're under, so long as you are just maybe thinking about your ex-girlfriend, not pining for your ex-girlfriend, certainly not talking about your ex-girlfriend. But if you had this recent really intense sexual experience and having that playing in the porn theater in your head while you're having sex with somebody else helps make the sex you're having with that somebody else 
more arousing or helps uh, get you to the point of orgasmic inevitability and to climax, yeah, you can certainly go there. We can all go wherever we want or need to go in our heads when we're having sex with people. Uh, that can, you know, some people don't want to do that because they want to feel present and in the moment. Uh, please read Dr. Lori Broda's terrific book on mindfulness uh, uh, during sex. That might help people who, you know, go there, think about other people, think about other things, think about past experiences or planned or hoped for future experiences and have a hard time being in the moment. But briefly, like thinking about something, having it run through your head while you're having sex, if it's not bothering you and the person you're fucking isn't bothered by it because you're smart enough not to tell them about it, then I don't think that that's a problem. As for the tattoos and the photographs and the swapping of pics, which is pretty standard these days for people to want to see pics, especially if they're meeting on a hookup app for sex, depends. Depends on how upset you would be. If you wind up sharing photos with somebody who's a malicious piece of shit photo collector who's going to put them all over the internet, you're 42 years old. Uh, I assume you're established, uh, have a job, have a career, have a life. Would it be consequential? Would you be at risk of losing your job if your photos were recognized on the internet by an employer? Would it cause problems with your family if they were recognized by your family? Or, you know, an even shittier circumstance, you were the victim of revenge porn and somebody who was just an asshole who wanted to blow up your life found your pictures or got your pictures from you and sent them to your employer or your family or your neighbors. If that's too terrible to contemplate, well, then maybe sending pictures with your identifying characteristics with those tattoos on them to people you barely know or don't know at all, maybe that's one of those low probability, unlikely to happen, but high consequence risks, you know, high consequence events that you won't, you don't want to take that risk, but only you can make that call. I will say though, however, you know, we live in a world where people are sharing their photographs all the time. There are people who have shared photos maliciously engaged in revenge porn. That's why we have revenge porn statutes now in most states because people did that. But when you pause to consider the numbers of photos, intimate dirty photos being shared every day by people who know each other, people in long-term relationships, by people who don't know each other and might never meet each other, it actually, if you look at it from a different angle, there's not as much revenge porn going on out there as there could be. I think incidents of revenge porn, you know, people sharing photographs with malicious motherfuckers, whether they know them or not, exes or strangers, is a very, very low risk. It's a low probability event that you will share your photos with somebody who will plaster them all over the internet. But we've certainly gotten calls from people in the past who that exact thing happened to. What is your tolerance for or appetite for that risk? Only you can make that call. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Stella Oatwill tweets, why is it I cannot remember major plot points from books I teach annually, but I can return to a half-heard episode of the Savage Lovecast after a two-week break and instantly remember the details of the question Dan Savage is answering. 
I don't know, Stella, but if I had to venture a guess, maybe my calls are more interesting than the books you're teaching. Sex Coach Shannon tweets, to the bi-curious MMF seekers on the Savage Lovecast this week, learn to find hot, sexy joy in the search. Accept that there's a chance you'll never live out this fantasy and keep trying anyway while getting off on the idea that it could happen someday. Also, go to play parties. That's really good advice. We spend a lot more time looking for sex than having it. So learning to enjoy the hunt, always a good idea. And finally, Oscar Von Seth tweets, Dan, just wanted to let you and the rest of North America know that as of last Saturday, Sweden should never be referred to as a model country again, since the openly racist homophobic Nazi party here got over 20% of the vote in our election. Yeah, the election that just went down in Sweden was disturbing. The far-right anti-immigrant Sweden Democrats won 20.5% of the vote, which is disgusting and disturbing when you consider that this party was literally founded by neo-Nazis in 1988 and is now going to be in government. Still hopeful that Sweden will kick these far-right assholes out of the government right to the curb like Austria did with their far-right wing idiots a couple of years ago. And frankly, as an American, I can't sneer at Sweden. Your sex ed, still better than ours, and it would be a cause for celebration around here if our openly racist, openly homophobic party, that is the Republican Party, was going to get just 20% of the vote in the midterms coming up here. All right, if you want to hear your tweet come out of my mouth, tweet about something you heard on the show and use the hashtag SavageLovecast. And as ever, a big thank you to everyone who posted about the show to your social media this week. Help spread the word. We really appreciate it. Now, listener response calls. Hi, Dan. This is a response call for episode 829, the caller whose husband... Uh, who had been in a, in a marriage for 13 years, whose husband had never gotten her off and wanted to center his pleasure in her orgasm. Um, while I agree with your response that it's, he sounds like a slop of insecure man-child, I think something you missed was that she said that maybe due to her lingering Catholic guilt, she didn't really want to tell him how to how to pleasure her. She said that she wanted him to take online sex education about how to pleasure women and essentially just try a bunch of stuff. And, you know, that's some bullshit. You know, you need to be able to tell people what pleasures you, as, as you, Dan, always say. And you can't just expect your, your partner to figure it out, you know, take some online classes and then be able to do what pleasures you. She needs to talk to him. She needs to tell him, you know, if they're going to stay together. Hey, Dan and co. I was listening to you talk about ruined orgasms on episode 829, and I know you love the expression orgasmic inevitability. There was a moment you were trying to encapsulate when you were talking about the ongoing stimulation the penis needs to continue through to orgasm. And there's a brilliant expression for this that I learned from the Twitter account Fesshole. That expression is the vinegar strokes. Admittedly, it's usually used by men when talking about masturbation. Example. I was knocking one out this morning when I realized I was late for work. Since I was almost at the vinegar strokes, I finished off and was able to just catch my bus in time. But I think the vinegar strokes can be applied to any pre-orgasmic friction, whether solo or partnered. The vinegar strokes. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? Use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. 
or you can always call us at 206-302-2064. Atlanta, Kansas City, and Victoria, you can see Hump on the big screen this weekend. Not one of those cities. You can stream Hump at home until October 16th. Go to humpfilmfest.com right now for your tickets. Love the Lovecast? Well, you will love the t-shirts. They are really gorgeous. And you can order yourself one at savage.love slash shop. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Carlton Thomas on Instagram at Dr. Carlton. And if you don't care who you follow, if you're a promiscuous follower, go follow the tech savvy at risk youth at Lovecast T-S-A-R-Y. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.